0: at Ephesus, and how to structure and set up the church, and so we started looking at this office of overseer, and we really wanted to look and see, well, what is an overseer? We took one week just on what is an overseer, and we looked all across scripture, and we saw that an overseer, anywhere you see overseer, or elder, or pastor, or shepherd, or bishop, some of your translations may use that, all of those are the exact same office. Now, that is the office of pastor. People may call it something differently, and some churches separate that and say, well, there's different offices. But everywhere we see in Scripture, an overseer exercises the responsibilities of an elder who exercises the responsibilities of a pastor. You can really think of that as one office. So, this is the overseer, the pastor, the elder. Okay. So, that's what an overseer is. Well, what does an overseer do? An overseer shepherds God's people. "...with a gentle, humble, willing, exemplary spirit through teaching and exercising a shared oversight in the church and prayer." The New Testament always gives a group of people that bear this burden together. So that's what the pastors of the church do. So this week, we're going to start looking at the qualifications of the office here. So um, I'm going to open us up in prayer to open up our time in the Word, and then we'll dive right in. Father, would you please open up your Word to us today? Use it to pierce our hearts with your truth. Holy Spirit, would you convict us of sin? Would you encourage us towards righteousness? Father, thank you so much for sending your Son, the living Word, to live and die in our place so that we might be free to live according to your written Word. We love you, and it's in Christ, and we pray. Amen. So, um, verse 1, verses 1 and 2. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. The list is going to go on, but I'm going to stop right there. It starts off, with this phrase that we've read, the sentence that we've read, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So Paul uses this phrase, the saying is trustworthy. We've already looked at it already in the letter, and it pops up several more times. It's his way of saying, you can take this to the bank. What I'm about to say is really, really important. So the context of every other time this pops up is always talking about salvation and good works, Except for this time. This time it's talking about the office of pastor, overseer, elder. And he gives it a lot of weight. So he says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, and then he starts giving qualifications. The first important observation here is that the office of overseer is filled by someone who aspires to the office. In student ministry, there's this crazy phenomenon. You can get students together and gather around, and they're all talking. I can tell you instantly a few words that you can say every time to guarantee they will be dead quiet within a matter of milliseconds. Who wants to pray? It's like the air gets sucked out of the room. Instantly, everyone's... (laughs) Like, avoid eye contact. And they look down. They look away from you. You're looking around. And you're like, okay. And then you never. it never fails. You have the personality of the group that says, they'll pray. And then volunteer somebody else. And they're like, oh, <laughs> And they stop looking at me. And there's this idea that we want to volunteer someone else, but then that's not willing. But then sometimes, out of obligation, they're like, uh, uh, I'll pray. And, and they pray. So this is kind of fighting against that idea, that that is this obligation like, well, they'll do it, and, and well, they'll do it, and sometimes we fall into this trap as a church, especially with committees, we'll have someone serving on a committee that really doesn't aspire to that task, or, or not willing to carry out the responsibilities of that task. Well, it's important to see here for overseer, this office need to be needs to be filled by someone who aspires to that office. That lines up with the willingness that we looked at last week. An overseer um, oversees willingly. And I think this applies to other parts of our church as well. Uh, with the search committee, first thing I did, we got all the results in. I contacted the first person on each list to make sure that they are willing to serve. Someone who is not willing to serve is not going to serve to the capacity with which we need them to serve in that moment. Same thing with having work done at the church. Volunteering. Teaching Sunday school. The church needs willing workers. The church needs willing workers. So that being said, willingness is not enough. Another thing I've seen in student ministry especially, I would have volunteers that came up and it Almost always, right after I get to a church, you have this flood of volunteers. And Hey, look, I will serve in the student ministry. I'll do this. I'm willing to serve. And something I learned is that just because someone is willing to serve in that capacity doesn't mean that they necessarily are best equipped to serve in that capacity or that they ought to serve in that capacity. I'll tell you one red flag for me is if someone comes up to volunteer in student ministry and it's an old man who wants to volunteer specifically in 7th and 8th grade girls Sunday school. I have had that. Instantly. Love this brother, but, you know, I think we're going to look for someone else. Okay? Love that you're willing. Not quite the right fit. So I think that the willingness isn't quite enough. It's not enough to just be willing to do something. Willing isn't the same as being gifted or qualified or passionate. So it's the same thing here. What is being sought after, the office of overseer, is a noble task. It is a big deal in the church. So you want to make sure that the candidate is willing But you really better make sure these other qualifications are present also. You don't want someone who's willing, but they can't teach. You don't want someone who's willing, but they can't oversee the ministries of the church. So willingness is important, but because of the nature of the work, there must be more. So it says that whoever aspires to this office, he desires a noble task, is what it says. Uh, NASB instead of noble task, it says fine work. They aspire to that office. They desire a fine work. So this is the idea behind this word. Is not um, the, the word good is not just good. It's I like the NASB, I think, a little bit more than the ESV here, this noble task. The, the word really is fine or beautiful is how it's used elsewhere. So the idea, noble, fine, beautiful, this isn't just good. This is terrific. This is honorable, beautiful. What a glorious thing to aspire to. When we have people in the church, members or students, that come up and say, I think that God is calling me to this office. That is worthy of praising God over. Praise God that he's called you to such a noble task. Such a beautiful task. That's the idea here. So, because it's a fine work, the office of overseer, elder, pastor, is a beautiful office, but it is only beautiful to the one who is called to do it. The one that is not genuinely called, that doesn't aspire to this office, to them, it won't be beautiful. It will become a burden. They are pursuing this beautiful task, but they will not treat it beautifully. That's the idea. So the person who aspires to this it is a beautiful, noble task, therefore, and that's why we come into verse 2, because this is the situation, therefore, there needs to be qualifications. And so that's what we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at today. Verses 2-7 through seven begins the list of these qualifications. I'm going to number and list off all of the qualifications for you. You can follow along as best you can. It'll be easier to follow along in verses 2 through 3 because they're right next to each other. But then they start to spread out a little bit. So I'm going to number off and list these for you. And then we're going to start moving through them a little bit. So number one, I'm going to just go through the whole list. You can follow along if you're able. Starting in verse 2. Number one, must be above reproach. Number 2 must be the husband of one wife. Number 3 must be sober-minded. Number 4 must be self-controlled. Number 5 must be respectable. Number 6 must be hospitable. Number 7 must be able to teach, starting in verse 3. Number 8 must not be a drunkard. Number 9 must not be violent, but must be gentle. Number 10 Must not be quarrelsome. Number 11. Must not be a lover of money. Verse 4. Number 12. Must manage household well and with dignity. Number 13. And verse 6. Must not be a recent convert. Number 14. Implied with that. Must not be puffed up with conceit. And then number 15. And verse 7 must be well thought of by outsiders. So before we dive into this, a few observations. That's 15 qualifications listed for this office in this letter. 15 qualifications. Okay? This is a serious deal. This should not be treated lightly. And what we're going to see is when we get to deacons, we see something similar. And I think that we don't always give the weight to these qualifications that they deserve. I Think that we don't always give them the weight that they deserve. Several of these kind of fall into similar categories. So literally as I'm typing this message out and preparing to present it to you, I thought about and actually started lumping them together. Then I stopped and erased all of that work. We're going to do these one at a time. Here's why. Here's why I did this. I changed my mind I think that this is worth us going through slowly. Here's why. These things are things that don't just apply to pastors. Every item on this list, with the exception of two qualifications, applies to every person in this room. Here's the two that don't apply to every person in this room. Number one, able to teach. Okay, God does not expect everyone in here to be able to teach. It's a gift that's not given to everybody. Okay, number two, to not be a recent convert. You can't help how recent of a convert you are. If you don't fit this qualification, you will over time, but that's not something that I'm saying you have to do this right now. But every other qualification here, every other one is something that every Christian should be seeking after. It's not just the pastor. Whenever I worked at Sonic in El Dorado, I, was, I had my Bible with me at all times because I would read on break. So people knew I'd go on break and read. They knew that I went to church and I had several nicknames, you know, preacher and, you know, church boy and all these different things. And it wasn't mean. It was, it was very friendly and lighthearted. But what happened was they had a lot of respect for me just because they saw that I read the Bible, which was interesting and if I was working and someone said a cuss word, they would stop and look at me and say, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were there. I'm like, what does it matter that I'm here or not here? Who does it really offend? And they're like, oh, that's a good word. That's a good word, brother. I'm like, "What? Well, my point, anyway. So there's this idea that there's levels of spirituality, and maybe the closer you are to God, the more that you're obligated to pursue holiness, but then the less close you are to God, the more it doesn't really apply to you as much. That's not the case. All of us are saved from sin. So, all of us pursue holiness. Not to earn our salvation, but as a response to that. And it's the same thing with all these qualifications here. So, 13 of the 15 that I just listed apply to all of us, not just pastors. The point in all of this is is that whoever is ordained for this office better for sure excel in these things because their job is going to be to cultivate these things in the church through their teaching and their experience in the faith. Their job is to cultivate all of these things in the church through their teaching, that's the able to teach, and their experience in the faith. That's the recent convert. They will not be able to do this effectively if they can't do those two things. So they are trying to formulate in us this aspect of being above reproach and all of these things. So all of that out of the way, we're going to finally get started in the qualifications. Let's look at qualification number one. Verse two. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. In the Greek, this is a single word. It's also translated... Uh, in other places, not in Scripture, in culpable or blameless or unrebukable. So it's closely related to another word that means not arrested. The idea is that you are free from accusation of breaking a command or committing a crime. You are free from accusation is what the idea is. Someone should not be able to accuse you, if you're above reproach, Someone should not be able to accuse you of breaking a law, specifically God's law. That's what it means. So here's where this gets tricky, is people understand commands in Scripture differently. Some people have different ideas of what the Scripture teaches about what we ought to do or ought not to do. And it makes it really tricky here. One of the biggest examples of this is with drinking alcohol. Some see it as being clearly condemned in Scripture, period. Some see it as being only condemned when taken in excess, becoming drunk. This is the easiest example. So let me set up a scenario. You have a potential elder or pastor or overseer who is convinced that alcohol consumption is okay as long as it's enjoyed in moderation. Okay, So he will drink alcohol, but he will not get drunk. There's two possibilities here. This man is right and in his drinking he doesn't sin or he's wrong and in his drinking he does sin. Okay? One of those two, one of those two is true. In each of these scenarios, the congregation that he is seeking to lead is likely composed of people, at least in our culture, with varying convictions on this. Some would say that's sinful. Some would say well, that's not sinful. The Bible doesn't condemn that. Okay? So the congregation is likely split. Some agree, some disagree. Regardless of which of these two is true, the man is not free from accusation. Even if he is right and it's not sinful, he is able to be accused by those who disagree. Does that make sense? He is not free from accusation, even if he's right. He is able to be accused by those who disagree. Here's the second scenario. Same scenario, okay? The elder does not consume alcohol. He's convinced it's sinful. Again, there's two possibilities. He's right, it's sinful, and by not partaking, he's avoiding sin. Okay, great. Second possibility is, he's wrong, it isn't sinful, but guess what? He still doesn't sin by not partaking. It's kind of complex to wrap your mind around, but think about that. In the first scenario, there's a 50-50 chance, so to speak, he's going to fall into sin. Could be right, could be wrong. He's convinced it's not. What if it is? So depending on what he does, there's this possibility of negative repercussion. In the second scenario, it doesn't matter whether he's right or not. By abstaining, he is freeing himself from accusation. This is what it means to be above reproach. So to kind of give you another illustration of this. To give you another illustration, suppose you've got two cups. Okay, We're on a work site, overseas doing mission work or youth trip or whatever. You're at home and you're drinking. You've got some sweet tea or whatever someone else got. And I take a drink and I put it down and it never fails. Someone else comes right where you've put your cup. it could be a whole wide open table. It doesn't matter. They will put their cup right next to your cup and then, not spill it, and then walk away and do whatever. So then you come back and you're like, oh no. And you're looking in, they're both at equal levels. Oh no. You look around the cup, maybe there's some lipstick, it wouldn't be mine. Oh no. Okay. <laughs> I'm really thirsty. I, I do, I want to take a chance. Some of us would never take a chance. We're like, I ain't taking a chance to touch a nobody's cup. Some of us don't care. we like, Cool, <laughs> we've all gone away with both of them. So we've got both of these, and I think, okay, I really don't want to steal someone else's drink. You know, that would be wrong, because if they're freaked out by it, and I grab their cup, they may not want to grab mine, and I'm depriving them of something to drink. So I have to take a chance, I'm like, uh, okay, you know, which one should I get? if I choose to pick one of these, and it might not be mine, and I choose to drink from this, I am open to accusation whether I'm right or not of drinking someone else's drink. And I've experienced this firsthand where I know that this happens at youth events, so we would go outside and play basketball and I'd have my drink and I would set it in the exact corner of a building because there's only one way to get it in the corner without someone stacking their cup right on top. So then if someone sets their cup next to mine, I know mine was nestled in the corner. I know this is mine. But it doesn't matter whether I know this is mine. If the person who set their cup down there says, no, that was mine, and they're really convinced of that, I am not free from accusation in that moment. So to be above reproach would be to say... I guess on the one hand, you could say, I'm taller than all these little kids. I'm going to put mine up here where no one can put their cup there, and then I'm free. Or in this scenario, when it's already happened and I don't know, to be free from accusation, there's only one possibility. Don't touch the cups. Someone would say, well, but you're missing out on your sweet tea. That is a shame. (laughs) You're missing out on your sweet tea but I'm being above reproach. That's the idea of being above... Now I want some sweet tea. That's the idea of being above reproach. Okay? It's not just about getting something right or not. It's about wisely drawing your lines when you deal with sin. It's better to draw the line... And this is not a political statement. I know some of you, anyway... (laughs) It is better to draw the line too conservatively rather than to draw the line too liberally when dealing with potential sin. Okay? Or to word it different, to avoid the political connotation. Those really are the best words for that. It is better to be overly cautious than to be overly casual when it comes to potential sin. That's what that means. That's the above reproach. If someone's being above reproach, they're saying, I really don't want to be accused of even the possibility of sin. That's what the idea is. So someone might say, so what you're saying is that to be above reproach means that we have to avoid enjoying freedom when we know something isn't sinful just because someone else might think it's sinful. Yes. Let me be clear. That's exactly what I'm telling you. Do you really think that's what God wants? Yes, I do. Well, that's that's audacious. What gives you the right to say that? God says that. I'm going to give you two passages of scripture right now that you can write down and go look at it because I don't want you to just take my word for this. Romans chapter 14 not giving you verses, the whole chapter. You have to do some reading. Romans chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I could give you one more example from Colossians. It basically makes the point here, but Colossians chapter 2, kind of in the second half of that, hits that a little bit as well. But Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8. So one of these, both of them, the subject matter is whether or not to eat meat in front of certain believers. But the context is different. In one of these, the context is of Jewish cleanliness. For the Jews, it would be considered unclean to eat certain types of food. So if I eat meat as a Christian and my Jewish brother or sister sees me eating meat and they're convinced it's sinful, well for them it is sinful. For them it is. Not because eating meat is sinful, but because they think it is. If I engage in something that I think is sinful, that's sinful. Like if I think it's sinful to place something on top of my Bible, there are many cultures that teach this and I love the heart behind this. If I think that this is sinful, whether or not it's sinful, I've just sinned. If I think it is. That's the idea. So these Jewish believers were convinced that this is sinful. And what Paul says is, if my eating meat causes my brother or sister to stumble, I will never eat meat again. The other context is a Gentile context. It's in the context of idol worship they lived in these places where they would have these great feasts and worship these idols and the food would be sacrificed to their idols and they're worshipping their god by gathering together and enjoying this feast well then a believer is invited in they come in and they sit down to eat and they know in their mind whether it's said or not they know this food was offered to an idol but the christian knows idols aren't real they're just wood There's only one God. So I'm going to eat this meat because this means nothing. And Paul says they're free to do that. However, if a weaker brother or sister who comes out of that background and they see you eating meat dedicated to this idol, you're going to tempt them to sin against their conscience. They will be weakened in their faith by seeing you freely partake. So that's the context of those two chapters. Really would invite you to go read them for yourself, especially if maybe you've never seen those before. Really eye-opening. Romans 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to read a small, small excerpt. We're not going to completely break down both of these huge chapters. I'm going to read a small excerpt from both of these. I'll read from Romans 14 first, and then I'll go to 1 Corinthians 8. So Romans 14, I'm just going to read verses 20 and 21. Here's what God's Word says. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So again, that's the context of Jewish cleanliness But he says, don't, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. We could plug in any number of things there in place of food. Don't, for the sake of television, destroy the work of God. Don't, for the sake of music, destroy the work of God in someone else. There's a lot of things we could plug in here. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit plug that in for you. Do not, in your desire to express your freedom in Christ, destroy the work of God and another brother or sister. Verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or whatever other thing fills in that blank that might cause your brother to stumble. God's words, not mine. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 through 13 1 Corinthians 8, 8 through 13. Here's what it says. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. Basically, food doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. It is better to sacrifice your rights than to harm one another through the free exercise of your freedom, whether it's sinful or not. It is better to sacrifice your right to freedom than to harm one another through the exercise of your freedom, whether it's sinful or not. Paul constantly speaks about the same idea of sacrificing his rights as an apostle. I could have asked you for money. I could have taken a believing wife with me like many of the others. Should we be the only ones to not engage in these things? But they did. They sacrificed so that there would be no stumbling block. This is what it is for Christians to be selfless. Selfishness says, I don't want to miss out on something enjoyable when I don't think it's wrong. I don't want to miss out. But selflessness says, I will miss out for someone else. Selfishness says, I won't. Like, I have nothing to do with you. Scripture says we are a body. We look out for one another. So for you, I will go without. That's hard. This is how every Christian is called to act. Now, is it sinful to exercise your freedom if your brother or sister, who might be weakened, doesn't see it? What if I'm convinced it's not sinful... Can I partake if no one else sees? Then I'm not causing them to stumble, technically. I'm going to reread uh, Romans 14, uh, verse 22. Not reread it. It's the verse following. I'm going to reread uh, read Romans 14, 22. It says um, in verse 21, It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Verse 22. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and... And God, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. So I would say that it isn't sinful concerning being above reproach. That's not thinking about the action itself. That could very well be sinful. But as far as it comes to being above reproach, that's not sinful. But I would say it's a good way to stumble in the future. Technically, it's between you and the Lord. But you were making it really easy for that to get out of hand in the future. And I want to give you a a personal example of this. So whenever me and Stacy were at another church, we um, were trying to get plugged into Sunday school. And when you're in student ministry, you don't have a lot of adult relationships, Um, it's very easy for all of your friends to be under the age of 18, which is not a good place to be as an adult. Like, you're going to lose your sanity. So I would teach Sunday school, and Stacy went to get plugged in at some adult Sunday school classes. And so as we get invited to different Sunday school events, we can start to build relationships with adults, (laughs) like people our age and have those good relationships. Well, then what happened was got on Facebook, and we got an invite to a crawfish boil. And we're excited. I mean, at this point, we're in our early 20s, I think, whenever this happened. And we're like... This is great. Okay. Friends. Yes. So we get to looking, and then we see four letters at the end of this invitation. B-Y-O-B. So I'm like, who gave you this invite? It was the official Sunday School Class Facebook page. Okay. Uh, Maybe, like, it's a joke. You know, it's a common joke in, in youth ministry, at least. Bring your own Bible. They're going to have a Bible study. It's a Sunday school class. That's, that's what it is. They're joking about Bible study. That's, that's what it is. What if it's not? <laughs> we struggled, and we finally found a way to word a question in such a way that it wasn't like, what is this, in case we're wrong. You know, we're like, well... Hey, we saw, you know, why, because it said BYOB, I don't know if I said this, it said BYOB after eight or something like that is what it was. BYOB after eight. So instantly it's got a tick against it. I'm like, uh, I don't think it's Bible study, but maybe. So we ask a question and they said something to the effect, this was years ago, something to the effect of, yeah, that way the kids are asleep and they don't see us. So we really wrestled. Here's why we wrestled. We did not really have a lot of friends we needed friends our age. I needed some peers that we can grow together in Christ with. We were really desperate for it. I mean, at least I was. I'll speak for myself. I was desperate for that. And we said, well, you know what? We don't want to do that. We're convinced in our mind that we should not do that. So what if we just went and just didn't drink? They want to drink. You know what? That's between them and the Lord. As far as us, we're not going to. We decided not, and here's why. What if someone takes a picture and puts it on Facebook? And they've got us next to another family, and they're drinking, and we're in that picture with them. What is every Facebook addict going to think when they see that picture? They were there drinking with everyone else. So you know what we did? We didn't stink and go to the party. It stank. We really wanted those friends. But being above reproach means sometimes you don't get to enjoy the things that you would like to for the sake of your witness and the conscience of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Unfortunately, we did not get invited to another Sunday school party by that class. We did find some other friends. God was faithful, and we were able to grow in our faith because of that. So, sometimes, this is the idea of being above reproach, and this is a difficult call. But this is what we are called to do. When it comes to the office of overseer, elder, pastor, being above reproach better especially be true because the church will look to them for behavior that is worthy of imitation. I hope that I am worthy of imitation in every single thing I do. I hope that you can imitate everything I do, and I hope your five-year-old children can imitate everything that I do and not sin. That is what I hope. I also hope That we all bear that mantle. Maybe you're in a habit of using curse words when you're around certain groups of people. Maybe you're in a habit of telling jokes that you may not want the pastor to hear. I am begging you, if you don't want me to hear it, surely I'm not higher than the Lord. And we should all strive to be above reproach in our lives. But the pastor better definitely be above reproach. Because he is going to be the one leading the congregation in how to imitate Christ. So here's the good news in all of this. We serve a God who died for us so that even when we fail at being above reproach, and you will, I will at some point, Even when you fail at being above reproach, we are still secured by God forever through Jesus Christ. You can try as hard as you want to be perfect. It'll never happen. But Jesus was perfect. And he's the perfect model for us of being above above reproach because he actually was above reproach in everything. He actually was perfect. So following that line of reasoning... If you want to know the best way to be above reproach, imitate Christ, our Savior, who died for us to cleanse us from all imperfection and sin. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have given the church this office, overseer, elder, pastor, to bear the image of Christ for us. I thank you for all of our pastors growing up even now, maybe those that we listen to on the radio, who have modeled for us good works and behavior so that we might imitate them as they imitate Christ. Father, when we stumble, it being above reproach, we thank you right now that you have already redeemed us from that sin, that it was not outside the scope of your vision or the effect of your sacrifice on the cross that you wait ready to shower forgiveness on your children. But Father, we do want to live above reproach. So strengthen us. Surround us with other believers that can challenge us to be better examples of this. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I'm sorry we only made it through one qualification.